If you would turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, we, I need to do a little bit of review uh, because this is a two-part message. I always have to do that uh, because of its reliance upon two key words. We're really studying a single sentence, but it is extended across several verses, as you can see, uh, really uh, from verse 1 all the way through verse 4. Uh, we have a semicolon there somewhere, I think, as well, but uh, really verse 2, 3, and 4. And the key here in this greeting is grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then we have a series of prepositional phrases built around that and added to that that we have uh, gone through two concepts that were presented out of four. We saw that last week. And so let's just remind ourselves a little bit of grace and peace, that while we uh, have our ideas of what that could mean in, in a very positive fashion, that we sometimes forget the context of grace and peace. And we gave examples last week of Mary, the highly favored one, and what it meant to have the grace of God come upon you and disrupt your life. And all the difficulties that she encountered in the midst of that, and all the things that amazed her mind that she had to treasure in her heart that brought grief to her as well in being the earthly mother of our Lord Jesus Christ and in that process of, of even watching his crucifixion and everything between, really. And so while we think of grace as being something that should be sought after, we recognize that it's in the midst sometimes of, of those hardships of life that grace is extended more. The other example we gave was as Paul and wanting to be relieved of his physical malady that was inhibiting or interrupting his ministry. And God says, no, that is part of my ministry to you. And so his statement is, after praying three times, my answer is the same. My grace is sufficient for you. And so grace is really not deliverance from in many times because the Bible says that we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. So it's not deliverance from tribulation. It is deliverance in the midst of it. It is sustenance that God sustains us even as we engage in these things. And we don't often think of grace. We usually think of grace as being these gifts that are associated with our salvation. And certainly that is God's grace. Uh, but in terms of Christian living, where does grace come into play? And we want to really flesh that out in this passage. And then similarly with peace, that we often think, well, peace is, is a quietness and we're the, the recipients of that. And certainly a salvation we are, but we're talking about the multiplication of peace. And we know that that involves sacrifice. And so we are associating these words with some different concepts. And so we saw the necessity of sacrifice to make our peace and salvation, our peace with God is established because of the sacrificial service of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you think that you can come to peace with God outside of sacrifice and service of Jesus, you are mistaken. And peace in its essence requires sacrifice, whether it be within a home, whether it be within a church, whether it be within a, a larger community, a nation, and internationally, it comes out of the attitude of sacrifice and service one to another. And so we find these principles that we often don't associate with grace and peace. And yet, we find them consistent in God's word. We go all the way back to Genesis, all the way through Revelation. We can see that this really is what's entailed in, in the concepts of grace and peace and that we abandon them too often in our reading of a passage like this that grace is associated uh, with, with suffering, with, with, ser with serving God in the midst of that and overwhelming that of tribulation that peace is in the midst of sacrifice and service. And so we want to in, in, keep those concepts in our mind as we look at how are we going to multiply this. Am I really, is Peter really wishing for people to have more sacrifice, more suffering, more service? Is he really praying for that, that we have more of that in our life so that we can experience more of God's grace? And again, Paul in his writing says, uh, that the wrong view of grace is that, well, I will sin more because if I sin more, God has to forgive me more and that increases grace. And Paul's response to that concept of multiplying grace is, God forbid, very strong statement. 
And so, and so even the Bible presages that people will think, well, if forgiveness equals grace, therefore I'll do more sin to be forgiven more, and then I'll be a bigger, bigger recipient of God's grace. No. Certainly forgiveness is an element of God's grace that we do not want to uh, eliminate. I'm not saying that it is insignificant. It certainly is. But it is not the, the premier element of God's grace. It is the initial element that we experience. But when we talk about multiplying grace, we're not talking about, well, I have to go off and... and lead a sinful life, I have to be a wayward Christian, I have to be a backslidden Christian, is the old term we used to use a lot, and then, oh, God will forgive me all that, and I can be restored to what I was before, and that is just not, and that somehow that's multiplying grace, and that is contradictory to God's word, but it is often our view and the limited view of, our, of God's grace. God's grace is sustaining. His peace is that which enables ministry and calls us to be peacemakers, which means we are entering into relationships, willing to experience a sacrifice similar to Jesus Christ, that we might bring peace into not only relationships between men, but between men and their God. Whatever it requires of us, even it requires our very lives. And again, we can go to, to our New Testament authors and look at the example of their lives who just counted their lives as nothing, that the gospel might go forward. And so I'll risk everything to make sure you hear the gospel, whether it be my liberty, my possessions, my very life, my family. All, it's all at risk because I want you to have peace with God. Uh, not that I'm trying to acquire something for myself, but on your behalf, blessed indeed are the peacemakers, as, as Jesus said in Matthew. And so this is the context of grace and peace that we want multiplied to us. We looked at two elements that need to be increased or multiplied, and that is of righteousness. And we saw that back in verse 1, that we went from the righteousness that we obtained of, of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ in which we stand, to our own personal godliness in verse 3, where it says that we, are, that we have been given... Uh, all is necessary for God, life and godliness, to where it concluded is in verse 4, that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so God has moved us from just this initial concept of righteousness in which we are the passive recipients, by, well, by faith, we are receiving the gift of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, that that then is multiplied in us by us living out righteously, that we are going to be righteous and godly in this present world as we look for the blessed hope. And of course, Peter's going to get to that very soon in, in his book, not very soon in my sermons, but very soon in the book, he's going to get to that concept of the coming of the Lord. And so we're going to see this multiplication that we're going to not just sit here and stagnate, saying, I'm, I, I'm accepted, I'm heading to heaven because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. And, and if, if that is sufficient, yes, for your interest to heaven, but it's not what Peter is praying. He's praying that grace and peace be multiplied to you. Your righteousness need to be, takes the, the, this, this payment of Christ's righteousness for your behalf and say, I'm going to add interest to that. I'm going to take that principle and I'm going to add interest of my own godliness, my holiness, and that I can escape the corruption of this world, that I, can, that I don't have to be uh, caught into the... Uh, sinfulness, the violence, the, the evil of this world. And so I can live godly in this present world as I look to the one to come. And so our righteousness needs to be multiplied. We saw it last week. And then the second one we looked at last week was our knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we do not content ourselves with, well, I had sufficient information to place my faith in Jesus Christ at the salvation event and, and, but if it stays there and that's all we have is the elementary teaching of God's word, that we, again, have misunderstood who and what we are. 
the authors of Scripture again tell us that if we stay there, just requiring this, this baby food, if you, you want just milk, 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 all I want to hear is the gospel. I have people tell me that, you don't preach the gospel. I just want to hear a good gospel message. I'm like, aren't you a believer? <laughs> Why are we so tied to hearing the gospel message over and over again and so reticent, so... Uh, uh, lacking an interest in getting a meaty sermon. Uh, but yet, I have them, and, and, and it has come to my ears many times over the decades of ministry, uh, ministering God's word. Well, I, I just want this. I, want, I was like, you're a baby? You want to be baby fed. Uh, I, I don't drink baby, I don't eat baby food. You really drink it, because you don't really chew that stuff. Um, it's been pre-chewed for you. And, and you want baby food all your life. Well, we want grace and peace to be multiplied in the knowledge of Christ. And so this elementary knowledge is absolutely necessary. I don't deny that. It is, it is necessary for the establishment of your faith to be placed in the right position, the right person, and the right work, and to understand the, the, the basis of God's uh, salvation and your necessary response by faith. But if it stays there and stagnates there, we've done a disservice to Christ. It says that we should grow in our knowledge of him, that we should increase in that daily, that that is one of the main purposes of the church and each leader within it, according to Ephesians chapter 4, that he gave us all of these gifts in the church that might grow in our unity, in our knowledge and faith. And they are intricately tied, and we can see that in, in many other scriptures, including here, that we need to be, that is the knowledge of Christ. And that needs to be increased. We saw that there in verse 2. We see it again in verse 3. That uh, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, that we would increase. And so how are we going to have this grace and peace multiplied? When we increase our knowledge of the scriptures of God, of Jesus Christ. How much do I know about it? How much have I increased? How much do I want to know? And so we have lots of opportunities to be taught God's word in our church. How much do we lay hold of that communicates something about how much we really want to know. How much do I really want this information in my life? And not only just, uh, and tonight is going to be, like I said earlier, pretty much a review as we go through, here's the scripture that we're using to lead someone to Christ. And when we look at that approach, we might say, well, I already know those. But there's a lot of information you already know that gets reviewed and renewed on a regular basis. The question is, when was the last time you used that knowledge? Oh, we're thinking now. You see, it's by regular use that that knowledge is being used regularly, like at your job, that knowledge to do your job, that vocabulary, that set of information you access every day at work, multiple times a day, and by that you are essentially reviewing it. But if you walk away from that for two or three years and come in, what's the first thing you say? I'm going to need to have a little time here to get back up to speed. Why? Because of neglect. So do we need the rudimentary knowledge of Christ? Yes. Do we need to revisit it time and again? Yes. Why? Because of neglect. I mean, if you're going out there every day and sharing the gospel and the rudimentary truths of God's word, uh, then yes, it's going to be right on the tip of your tongue. You're going to go boom, 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 and be able to just fly right through them because you handle it every day. But I fear that for most of us, it's easy to lose that because of non-use. But we, won't, we want to get beyond that initial knowledge and deepen our knowledge of him who called us. That we want to extend it, expand it, and that we might search out the depths and breadths of God's truth in Jesus Christ. And so we want to see that multiplied in our life. That we just want not just this, but we want to just keep growing and growing and growing in our knowledge of Christ. 
And that is God's grace and peace. And Peter says, I want you to do that. I want you to have that initial knowledge, but I want you to increase in it. Because by increasing your knowledge of God, you'll increase in his grace and his peace in your life. Well, then we come to the third category, which we're actually now finally into some new material. And we come to the th third category we find in verse 3. It, and so let's begin in verse 2 again. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which having given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Uh, the third category that, that should be multiplied in us uh, that we see here spoken of is, is the concept of the power of God in us. Because it is correlated to as his divine power is given to us all things, grace and peace should be multiplied to you. And again, we want to take this from the power of that is associated with our salvation. Is there a great power in the blood of Jesus Christ in our salvation? Obviously. He has overcome our sin. He has overcome our uh, death. He has granted us a place in eternity. All of that is there. When we first trust in Jesus Christ, we say, wow, that was powerful. He transformed my life. And that should be a thing that we testify to, shouldn't it? This is that what the power of Christ did to me. I was once a sinner, but I came. What did I receive? I received the power of God to transform my life. And men write songs about it. Men discuss it. Men, men share that testimony. And they stand and says, I was the worst of sinners. Paul himself, I was once the worst of sinners, but God. But God. And that is an expression of his power to come in and transform us to be like his son, Jesus Christ. And we call that in theological terms that justification that we are taken, we brought into the judicial scene of the courtroom of God, and we are declared not guilty. And that is an extraordinary work of the power of God to then transform us from sinners to saints, holy ones. We who are once God's enemy becomes not just God's friend, but God's family. Wow. I do not want to diminish the necessity of that power being evident in your life at the salvation experience. I don't want to diminish that power at all. What I want to say is that that is a great investment of God in your life. And if that is the conclusion of it, we again don't get it. For God's grace and peace to be multiplied in us, we're going to have to see that investment of the power of the transforming work of Jesus Christ to be brought into the balance of our Christian walk here on earth. That we're going to move from that power to redeem us, to transform us, into the image of the Son and recognize that this is an ongoing process that we call sanctification, where I become more and more like Christ, just as we saw the righteousness go from imputed righteousness to, to um, experienced righteousness, where we are actually living godly lives. That is another element of sanctification. But this whole kind of the power of God. Now, where is the origin of this power? Well, certainly we talk about the power of the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and all of those things we put usually at the salvation event. When I first got saved, I saw this great power that transformed me, that forgave all of my sins, made me a child of God, and for that I will forever be thankful. But true thankfulness realizes that it's not for me to rest in that. It is for me to develop that. I don't take that and bury that in the sand and wait for the Lord's coming. I put it to work, right? I put that power to work. Well, that power not only is in the resurrection, and Paul talks about that in Philippians. Let's go there real quick. We're going to look at a couple of passages. Now that I'm not reviewing, I can do all my other verses here. I was still thinking I was in review, but I'm not. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3.
We'll pick up in verse 12. This is not that I already had attained or already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I want to lay hold of more of that which, by which Christ laid hold of me. By his sacrifice, by the power of his blood, he laid hold of me. Now it's time to reciprocate, and I want to lay hold of him. Of that same power, the re- and let's see what the power is associated with in verse 13. Brother, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. And so we find that the necessity there is there that um, I want to press on. I want to acquire this. I am engaged in this somehow. That this power is something I am going to take with me that that began my salvation. I'm going to follow it forward. I'm going to press it on. Well, what is the power? Look backwards. Verse 8, I indeed count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge. All right, we already have loss, sacrifice, for the knowledge. Do you see that? Sounds a lot like Peter, doesn't it? Coming up with those same terms. For whom I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. Oh, was that from last week too? Do you see the exact same phrases put together? Maybe in a slightly different order instead of righteousness first and knowledge. We have knowledge and righteousness, but we have the same principles, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteous which is from God by faith. And here we go. That I may, I'm going to take that knowledge, that righteousness, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. There's the third one right there. Right out of Peter. It's like these guys read each other's books. Or they have the same source of information. Holy Spirit. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering be conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And again, Jesus Christ resurrected. His resurrection power is what transforms. For me, now I want to attain that power. I want to press forward. I want to move forward with it. I'm not just going to sit back, put my feet up in the air, sit on my spiritual lazy boy and say, I got the power. No. If you really have the power, you put it to use. He says, I want to take this, the power of the resurrection, and I'm going to take this, and I'm going to attain to something. And that is my own resurrection. It is not based upon my work. My work is is a response to the power of the resurrection of my life. I have that kind of power. I have the power in Christ Jesus over sin and death. Wow. And so we look to the resurrection, not just for our salvation, but for our sanctification every day that I'm going to operate spiritually based upon not on my own uh, will, because that's unreliable. Not on my own strength, because that's weak. But on the power of his resurrection. That is what I live. That is what I Pray on, that is what I want to move forward. I want to add interest to that principle that God (laughs) deposited into my life. Well, we also have another source of that power. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Should be another passage you're well familiar with in Acts 1. Verse 8 says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And again, the concept of grace and peace, we, we looked at the resurrection, I think I would associate more with the concept of grace, uh, although peace is there too, it's the 
means by which we have it. Uh, but the power of the Holy Spirit is that power, Holy Spirit power is going to come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You'll be agents of this gospel message to other people, not based upon your own intelligence, not based upon your own compassion for people's losses, but based upon the power of the Holy Spirit within you. And that's why the Bible says you don't need to study too much ahead. If you know God's word, this is the Holy Spirit's sword, right? Take up the sword, that the sword of the Spirit is part of the armor of God. You should have a knowledge of this, which we're going to talk about tonight. Do I have enough knowledge of God's Word to point people in my Bible, or in their Bible, even better, to those verses? In their context, rightly handled. That I might lead them to come to know Christ. That I could be a witness of Jesus Christ. Not based upon my own ability to convince people, not based upon eloquence of speech, not based upon earnestness of, of, of imploring them, but rather based upon the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's Word. And so we have both of these placed upon us as salvation. And if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, you are not a believer. For it is the guarantee, and oh, let's go to Ephesians and see that. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. Might as well get all my verses together here. I really want to use this later on, more so, but we want to pick it up. Verse, verse uh, chapter 3, we're gonna, let's begin by verse 5. Which in other ages were not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, Again, the knowledge of God revealed through the Holy Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I am a minister according to the spirit of, or the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. We have the exact same series of words with addition of, in other words, we're going to be studying uh, the, the fourth one, which is the promises of God. And so we have this power, the power of the Holy Spirit to speak his truth, even truth that maybe other the generations before the church didn't have. Paul says, listen, this is the Spirit of God to lead us into this truth that's been revealed by God through his Spirit that we can communicate to one another and certainly communicate to the lost. Are we walking and ministering in the power of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit in us, or are we simply resting again with that power uh, of our salvation now latent in us because we haven't tapped it at all? God calls us to take that and use that Paul says, I want to keep pressing on. I don't want to be disqualified from the prize by thinking that at, as soon as I pray the sinner's prayer, now my obligations before God are cemented and secure and done. That I have no further need to grow. No, Peter says, I want grace and peace to be multiplied to you in righteousness and knowledge and in the power of God. Well, what does that power do? It get, he says, gives us all things needed. And let's go back, because we see it here, and we have the same word here in Ephesians 3. Let's go back here and press on to where that power leads to. The power, divine power has given us all things that pertain to life. Now, I don't know about you, but life is not a single event. Right? So if I ask you about your life, am I asking you about when you were born? Yeah, I was born. How's your life these days? Well, I was born. Right? But if you ask a Christian about their eternal life, well, I got born. And that's all you got? You got a testimony about when you came to know Christ when you were 12? I was 12. 10? Oh, man. I can tell you the story about when I was born. Is that it? Is that all we got? If I ask you about your life, 
You say, well, no, I've had a lot of life since some of us more than others since that time when I was born. And so you want all things pertain to life, to the Christian walk, to the spiritual life were given to me by the power of God, to the power of the resurrection. It isn't just to transform me at one point, it's to transform me throughout my life and praise God that we do it not by our own will, by our own strength, but by the power of his resurrection and the power of the spirit within us, we have these incredible helps and without them we could not walk spiritually before him. But yet with them, we must walk spiritually. We must have spiritual life, vitality. That our Christian living should be a, a living thing. And not a stagnant thing that we just keep going back to that one event. So all of our life and godliness is derived from his power, but it goes even further than that. And he says that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. We talked about this last week, of the phenomenalness of being partakers of the divine nature. That the these, I think, is not referring to just the uh, all things, but all these four categories of things we are need to have grace and peace multiplied in our life, that we might be partakers of the divine nature. I did talk about Ephesians 3 last week, but you saw in Ephesians 3 the concept in verse 6 uh, that was that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise. And so they, the, the mystery that Paul says, I got to really introduce in the church age, not truly introduce, but in reality in terms of long-term ministry introduced it. It was certainly introduced by Peter and his contact with Cornelius uh, to the larger church community or to the narrow church community of Jerusalem. But in terms of extended ministry, it was really Paul that had that privilege. And so he says, listen, here was the mystery. The mystery is that the Gentiles, who you call dogs, who are separated, are now fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise. Do you see the use of that word partakers? That we are share in the divine nature of Jesus Christ. What a phenomenal position we stand in. And what a waste if we do nothing with it. An extraordinary waste of God's grace and peace in our life. If we do nothing with that. He says, no, you, by, he has granted you by his power, you have all things you need for life and godliness, and now he, you are now partakers of the very divine, of the nature of God. Not that I become a God. No, that's Mormonism. Not teaching that. I am partaking of, I am sharing, I am an, a joint heir. Now that term you can associate, right? Yeah, the Bible says we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Exactly. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean that you get to have eternity with Jesus. It's that you are going to be in a place of sonship in the kingdom of God. You're going to share of his very nature of Christ as Christ became in his nature like us so that we in nature could become like him. And that is how he shares the power of the resurrection, the power of the spirit within us. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the comforter. He'll, he will lead you into truth. He will, he will do all of this for you. He'll comfort you. He'll strengthen you. He'll, he'll, he'll guide you. All of these terms. He is the, the seal and the, of your inheritance. I will not leave you as orphans. What a wonder of the power that God shares with us that we sit on our laurels and refuse to use. That we don't tap into it. And not reckon, well, if I want to tap into this power, there are some requirements to do that. I have to exert my will somehow in this process. I have to recognize that there are certain necessities to do that, and that is that I'm walking in the spirit and not in the flesh, that I am uh, presenting my life in an, uh, in an environment for the Holy Spirit to fill it, rather than to quench the Holy Spirit by removing the fuel it needs. And we understand these concepts in the spiritual realm. I don't know why we can't make the transition to the 
I'm sorry, the physical realm, why we can't make the transition to the spiritual realm. In the physical realm, you understand that you have a power. You have power within you. How do you access that? And how do you diminish it? Well, we diminish it by being lazy and by not feeding ourselves, right? Poor nutrition, I get weaker and weaker. If I just sit in the hospital bed and never move, um, my muscles all atrophy. They just get smaller. They shrink by lack of use. Well, that same principles are there in, in our spiritual vitality. If we are not active, we diminish. If we aren't feeding our spiritual selves, how can you exercise? You can have great big muscles, but if you haven't eaten for a week, um, you're going to be weak. And someone who might be, quote-unquote, not as strong, weaker than you, but as well nutrified, will overtake you. It's not the bulk of the muscles. It is the use of them and the nutrition behind them. And similarly with the Holy Spirit and the power of God, how do we tap that? Now, are there times when we tap it really hard? Yes. Did you know you can do that? In our physical bodies, that's called the adrenal gland, right? Man, when we tap that out of either fear or out of uh, uh, some other, and that's what every coach, every commander in the military wants to before the fight, before the battle, before the game, wants you to tap your adrenal gland to just bring your level of performance way up. And they give an emotional speech. They go and hit each other. They're trying to pump it up and strengthen, and, and they want to tap that. There's been a few times in my life when I've tapped that, and it's amazing. For not only short-term strength, but even endurance. It's amazing how far and how fast you can run when something's chasing you that wants to eat you. So we've all, we, we recognize that even our physical, well, and spiritually, similarly, when we hear Scripture, it says, well, the Holy Spirit filled them and they did boom, 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 boom. Well, was that perpetually the case? No. But on those occasions, it was absolutely necessary. And it was still the power of the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit in them that works through them. He's given us all things for life and godliness that we can be partakers of his divine nature. Wow, that kind of power is at your disposal. But we need to be consistent in our exercise of that. And so that's the third category. Let's go to the fourth one. Or this will turn into a three-parter, and that's no good. <clears throat> We've already seen it, and let's look at it again, verse 4. By which he have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Well, it be the promises. So we have these promises. So were there promises at your salvation? Oh, yes, there were, right? Um, but when we are getting, we're in the process of getting saved, the promises that we are focusing on are the promise of, of my sins being forgiven and of not going to hell and going to heaven. That's pretty much the extent of what we identify as the promises of God. Unfortunately, too many people never get past those two and realize that there are an enormous number of promises of God for the believer, not only for the, after death, that we can participate in the resurrection, not only for heaven in eternity, but for today. Paul talks about these in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Oh, let's look there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I keep referencing past. I don't always send you there. And let's pick up in uh, verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so we find this, the, these promises that this is what was taught by Paul and Silas and Timothy as they went around. Certainly the salvific promises of God are worthy and, and, and are important and necessary. I'm not diminishing those, please. 
We're not diminishing any element of salvation. We're simply saying that if it just doesn't get any farther than that, that you have done a disservice to your salvation and to your Savior, to God. And so we have all these promises. Well, are there promises? Oh, yes, the Holy Spirit himself was a promise of Jesus Christ to all who would believe that we would be indwelt by his Spirit. But we have many, many other promises of God in Christ. And, and perhaps one of the frustrating parts of our Christian walk is that we are often discouraged, often dismayed, often downcast, and even uh, looking over our shoulder at our past life, uh, like Israel longing for Egypt again and slavery, uh, because we don't understand the nature of the promises of God for us today. We think there's nothing before the day I got saved and the day I'm in heaven. That there's no promises of God in that intermediate period. And there are many promises of God, and all of them are found in Christ Jesus. When Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you, he wants you to grow in the promises of God that are going to participate in this part of you becoming like Christ. But it is a cooperative, like all of this, are we cooperating with the promises of God? Because promises have conditions, right? I'll do the, you know, if, then, if, then, if, then. And you go through John 14, 15, 16, and see all the promises. You know, if you believe in me, if you abide in me, I mean, then here's what you, you can ask anything in my name and I'll give it to you. What? That's a promise of God. Why don't we pray like that? Why do we ask so little of God? Because we don't really believe his promises. We don't really understand the concept of how the promises are linked to our daily walk and with our prayer life particularly, but certainly in other elements as well that are pretty spectacular when you look at some of the promises of God. He says, you'll be more than conquerors through him who loved you. You feel like that? that that's, that's hyper conquerors, is huper, is the Greek word. You'll be, and it translates super, uh, you'll be, or more than, sorry, super conquer, more than conquerors. You will be hyper conquerors. Do you feel like that? That's the promise of God. Through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the knowledge, through the righteousness. These are all linked together, but that's a promise. Now, I believe it's last on the list for a reason, because I believe the first three are conditioned for it, for predominantly. That these promises are that, well, you're making strides in your righteousness, and you're living what you know, and then making strides in knowing more so that then I can live better, making strides, and whether those two are reversed is okay, uh, and you're making strides in, in tapping the power of God in you and recognizing and living uh, a powerful, vibrant Christian life, and then the promises of you are yours. Not maybe, yes, no, Remember, Corinthians says, this is not yes, no. Not yes sometimes, no other times. It's yes all the time. When Israel's in the land, they had a different set of promises, really, than what we're looking for. Uh, and so don't go in the Old Testament and focus there for all the promises, because those were about a land and a nation, and, and we're not really looking for that. We're looking for some other things. And so, but in terms of promises, if they had kept that, God blessed them. It was always his blessing, always his blessing if he just kept those promises, and he even overabundant blessings. Because God is faithful. He will keep his promises. And those promises, yes, are wonderful, that he will promise to forgive your sins. They will promise you a place in heaven. Yes, he makes those promises, he'll keep those promises at your salvific event. But if that's worthy of your faith. Certainly, the balance of his promises are also worthy of your faith. That he will promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with such things as you have. Why? Because of his promises. 
His promises bring those approaches. Go out there and serve God with boldness. How can I serve with boldness? Because of his promises. How can I face persecution with a, with a, with a peace because of his promises? Not just those promises at the beginning of my salvation, but the promises that are, that are brought into my life throughout the course of my salvation as I grow in my knowledge of him, as I increase in my faith in him, as my righteousness uh, and godliness uh, reflects the, the, that which was imputed to me as the power of God is at work in me, I have laid hold of these promises. And I can be steady when the world is in turmoil. When the world is fluctuating all over the place and, and I can look at the promises of God because I know who God is and, and, and I can see his power and his promise. I, I put these four together and I recognize not only is there a concept that I am today becoming a partaker more and more of the nature of Christ but I also have a totally different attitude. That while the world is immersed that there's this great war uh, in Ukraine, like they were immersed in the pandemic and they were immersed, in, and we have all the, do you ever notice that everything's hysterical? Nothing is just, this is the, I remember, well, that was the news. That's it, go to bed. I mean, that's what I now it's oh it's 24 hours a day seven days a week you know, and 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 it's all hysterical why not just because people are desensitized that is the process of desensitizing people but hysteria is the absence of the power promises and knowledge and righteousness of Christ and so I can confront those, and, and I know what the Bible says, that the nations are raging. So yes, there's wars going on, there's, there's bad things happening, and they do ridiculous things, and even against the saints, and certainly that is, that is told to us, foretold to us in God's word, but I don't have to sit there and worry and wring my hands and be full of anxiety. I know exactly what's going on in heaven. God is laughing. Why? Because the psalmist says, the nations rage and God sits on his throne and laughs at them. Because they can fight against him as much as they want, but they will never, ever succeed. I know that. That's the promises of God. So why do I wring my hands and sweat and have sleepless? No. That is a, do I have other approaches? Certainly, because God says you know, the, here's what's going to happen. Here's how you should react. Here's how you should prepare. And while we're talking about preparation, let's remind ourselves about spiritual preparation. Number one on your list. Because I want to press on. Even if Caesar is hunting me. That was Saul, Paul's condition. Caesar was hunting him down and other believers. And so when we comprehend the necessity of forsaking all to follow after Jesus Christ, recognize we're simply placing ourselves into the promises of God, into that power of God, as we increase our knowledge of God and in our righteous living, that these are the things that will sustain us in grace and peace and multiply it in us. For the Christian to be, to be afraid of things of this world, to be full of anxiety, to be full of worry, is, is not in keeping with these principles of grace and peace. And it reveals something to us, it exposes something in our life that we are not focusing our attentions where they need to be focused. That we are too oriented to the world and to our old living rather than our new living. That we are too concerned about sharing in diabolical nature rather than divine nature. Because it's the way of this world to worry about all that stuff. 
I can be content. I can be at peace while the world is in shambles around me and blaming me for it. Never before that I know of in medical history were people who didn't take a shot blamed for the effects of the shot. Upside down science, because it's not science. It's falsely called. So they want to blame. Okay, I'm fine. Why? Because I'm not resting on science. <laughs> I'm not resting on my position in society. I'm resting on the power and promises of God. And so we see this direct connection between grace and peace being multiplied to us And these four elements, today's two elements, the power and the promises of God that should not be stagnant in our life, but should be ever increasing. That we should become partakers of Christ's divine nature, becoming like him. And this is your calling. Multiply it. And multiplication is a wonderful thing compared to addition. Don't just add it. Don't just add it in little small increments. Multiply it. Leaps and bounds that we might explode in terms of seeing the work of Christ in us and his promises completed because we increased in the knowledge. We increased in righteousness. We increased the power, tapped into that power that is in us, often latently, but it's there. If the Holy Spirit is there, that power is there. And it's not tied to your feelings. It's not tied to powerful music. It's tied to knowledge of God's Word. That is the sword of the Holy Spirit. We tapped in. If you're not, you're just missing out. And you're going to have kind of a miserable, weak, pathetic life. And that's not what Peter wanted for his readers. It's not what I want for you. Most importantly, it's not what Jesus intended for his followers. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for so much that you have provided for us. And Lord, that we might grow in these areas and not just neglect them that we might grow and have a hunger and thirsting for righteousness, that we ha- might uh, just seek to uh, persist in, in increasing our knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might desire after and understand the necessity of your power in our life on a daily basis and of your promises to be clung to, to be to conditions met and the expectation of faith in your faithfulness. Lord, help us as we strive to work in these areas. For we truly desire what Peter desired, that is that your grace, that your peace might be multiplied in us to your glory and praise. Christ Jesus' name, amen.